everyone. Welcome back to the podcast on Germany. We are continuing our month of Germany with another special interview with Dr. Nizreen Rahal. Um, she is a visiting assistant professor to Wake Forest University and a former fellow to the German Historical Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, she got her doctorate at the University of Toronto, as well as her master's there and her bachelor's. Uh, we are uh, so thankful to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for that. So uh, today we're, um, I read a bit about your dissertation. I actually read uh, the, uh, the portion that you sent me and we're talking about something that would shock many of my listeners to know about, which is of course, kindergartens, which if you live in the US, you probably just send your kids to without any thoughts about. It's just a great way to get rid of them before you can actually send them to school. Mm -hmm. But um, it seems that in your research, you have found that uh, these were not quite the same thing in Germany during um, the mid 1800s. Mm -hmm. Would you uh, be able to expand a bit on this uh, time period for us about um, what's going on in Germany in the mid 1800s that would make kindergartens such a dangerous um, place? Okay, excellent. Yeah, so uh, my my dissertation looked at the particular period between 1817 and 1864. And so in this period, really what you're seeing is um, this type of, um, I want to say, this attempt at really building a new type of state or nation on the part of reformers and revolutionaries, uh, people that were inspired by the Napoleonic Wars, particularly within German-speaking Europe. And then on the other side, uh, state officials, people associated with traditional authorities, also trying to create um, uh, a new type of entity as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. And so what you see here are these various trends on trying to create a new state, a new nation, new communities. Um, and at this time in German-speaking Europe, you still have these principalities and states, um, which only after 1814 becomes the German Confederation, which is this loose federation of German principalities and states, um, uh, a leftover of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but it, what's fascinating is also that there is this then time period uh, after the Napoleonic Wars where people are still thinking about how to organize these nation states and these, not nation states, but nations and these entities um, and how to create new citizenry or new subjecthood. Um, and this is where the kindergarten comes into place because it's really a, a, just like other educational institutions and educational spaces, an area where ideas for the future, ideas for the community can be really hashed out, um, both within, uh, both among state officials, religious officials, um, and reformers and revolutionaries, um, who are all thinking about the legacies of the Enlightenment and the Napoleonic Wars, um, and looking towards the future about what to do here. Um, and so that's really the setting for um, the project. This is the background then for um, how the kindergarten comes into place. Uh, if that uh, fits with that uh, 
Did I go on a tangent with that question a little bit? Oh, no, not at all. So we have this, um, we have these com uh, competing groups right now trying to uh, basically control what the new identity of uh, whatever is going to be coming out of this dramatic uh, period of Napoleonic control. Uh, and um, all of a sudden we have uh, the introduction of uh, kindergartens, which is the um, just sensors for uh, children in our eyes, but uh, mm -hmm. completely uh, different in the eyes of the people at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, could you explain where kindergartens come from and you know, like who started it and why? Yeah, so the kindergarten then comes out, uh, it's created by uh, this pedagogue named Frederick Frugel, who had imagined a new humanity to be born from the kindergarten. So the kindergarten literally means a garden of children. And for him, uh, thinking again of what is supposed to happen in a garden, that this is supposed to be a place where um, uh, natural laws reign where you have new growth, you have flowers blooming. The kindergarten is supposed to mirror that. So this is supposed to be where children would be growing and blooming into new humans, essentially, for this new ideal um, community that he wanted to create. Um, and so this figure, Frederick, uh, Frederick Frugel himself, was a fighter in the Napoleonic Wars, a member of the Lutzo uh, Free Corps, and, uh, or Fry Corps, sorry, and he was very much inspired by uh, Fichte, uh, uh, Jan, and the gymnastic movement, and, uh, and Arendt as well. So these leading nationalist thinkers from the Napoleonic era um, and the student movement uh, of the University of Vienna and, and, um, and, and other places like that. And so you see him inspired by this to create then a new educational space that he hoped would then create this new community, um, not just for German-speaking Europe, um, but for um, the, the world, essentially. And very much so, the kindergarten was supposed to then be governed by natural laws um, and free play, essentially. So curiosity um, is supposed to govern children through toys to learn greater lessons. And this was very much anti-authoritarian compared to other forms of education. Here he believed that through games, through singing, um, through certain toys, children can gain better lessons, uh, they can learn more compared to uh, just basic, just uh, repetitive learning that you see in traditional schooling. Um, and there was not to be any form of religious lessons as well. He saw that um, religious lessons weren't necessary for young children. Um, what the kindergarten is supposed to do was to develop certain key social, mental, and physical skills that can then later be developed later on in um, other forms of schooling, uh, like the elementary schools. And so what you have in the kindergarten then is this very much uh, radical space that is governed by 
children's curiosity and free play, but also importantly supervised by this new type of teacher or gardener, the kindergartner, uh, which was modeled on the ideal mother. And so it would be love and support uh, uh, that would encourage children. And so the kindergartner would use feminine emotion, uh, feminine love in particular, to encourage children to play or to, to take in certain lessons um, rather than through strict masculine discipline um, that you see in, in schooling later on. Uh, and so this was Frederick Frubel's idea of the kindergarten. Um, there were also a lot of mapping out of how the garden is supposed to look like, the type of toys and games. Um, and so it's very much a very layered place. Uh, there's a lot going on in the kindergarten, which is quite interesting if you think of how when you imagine the kindergarten today to most people, as you said, it's a very banal, a very everyday space that you supposedly just send your children off to. But when it was founded in 1840, it was very much tied to this specific cultural moment within German-speaking Europe. Um, and with that, bringing in all these uh, ideas for how society should be shaped, how humans and citizens could be imagined, but also gendered labor, thinking about this ideal kindergartner and how they're supposed to be dealing with children and also how they should be showing love and support for children. Um, yeah, so it's a lot going on. Interesting. So um, you you mentioned a bit, that, you know, that there was a, um, it was going against the grain uh, for uh, the traditional uh, child development. Um, could you uh, expand a little bit on what that would have looked like at the time? Yeah, so at the time, what you see are these children who would arrive to the kindergarten and they would be scheduled play, right? Uh, so they would have, for example, movement games, or they would have building games with blocks. Um, and uh, they would also have storytelling or singing. And so you'd have, even though Frederick Frubel didn't want uh, strict organization, he did have strict organization in the sense that they would have specific games um, and specific schedules. And to other pedagogues who were not part of the kindergarten movement, they oppose this. They didn't see how students or how children could learn through play like this, this type of what they saw as just just wild play. They didn't understand the, just the type of pedagogy behind it. Mm -hmm. um, in the other schools, other uh, preschools that were around at the time, particularly those headed by religious um, orders, were very much tied to learning how to read religious texts. Um, there would be some lessons on writing or, um, or learning uh, numbers and such like that, um, but the kindergarten did not include any of that, uh, which made it very much criticized by other um, pedagogues. Mm -hmm. And so you see this difference. Um, and it also made it 
very much controversial among uh, some pedagogues who, who, when they saw Frederick Frubel, Frederick Frubel was not trained to be an educator, whereas they were. So you see this um, kind of also attack on him, also the attack on how he's um, kind of encouraging women to join his his project, whereas other institutions were very much tied to more um, masculine figures, more explicitly calling for men's um, men's authority over this educational space. So there's a lot going on regarding um, this outsider who was not part of the educational um, profession, even though he was trained by Pestalozzi, uh, which again, uh, Johann Pestalozzi was um, um, a pedagogue in Switzerland who very much was tied to this idea of social pedagogy, retraining children and mothers to, um, to I want to say, they were trained to essentially um, be more productive, how to um, ensure that children develop productive skills towards work, um, learning uh, faculties and um, and the like. And so you see the Swiss Republic using Pestalozzi a lot. And also later on um, in, in Prussia, they also looked to Pestalozzi. Um, but Frubel himself also was very much uh, part of that movement, um, even though he was not classically trained as an educator like the others. Um, and so you have multiple criticisms against him. But what you see with the kindergarten in that sense is that it's really blooming during a period when there's a lot of ideas about education and pedagogy going around. Uh, it's not surprising to hear that um, they were beating, uh, beating him up on his lack of classical education. That is something that happens to basically anyone <laughs> who comes outside of the field. Uh, and has some great ideas, but no, you didn't get the right training, so you can't you can't know anything about this. Mm -hmm. um, he, um, I'm sure that wasn't the only um, that was weren't the only things uh, they went up against. You mentioned uh, him um, wanting to transform the, uh, the gender roles and uh, with his kindergartens. And I'm sure, especially at that time period, that was a uh, a um, a big step in a different direction than most people were w welcoming at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was also a step that he wasn't so welcoming of as well. So you see this interesting, uh, this interesting thing with uh, Frubel where he creates this space that encourages women to take part as a new, new educators, new mm -hmm. gardeners for this new humanity that is supposed to develop. But what he really wanted was to train women to be better mothers, essentially. He did not want women to develop into independent, um, he didn't want to develop women independent from the family. And so he hoped that this would be like a temporary thing or that they would essentially not override the supposed hierarchy of the genders that he also believed in. And so what you see is also a conflict then between Frubel and 
the women who essentially use the kindergarten as a way to talk about women's rights, um, women's equal women's equality, but also uh, women's economic right to a profession that didn't require them to enter loveless marriages, essentially. Uh, and so you have the creation of the first women, it's it's called the, the translation is the Women's College in Hamburg. Um, it's the first women's college in, in Europe at that time. And it um, its specific focus was to train kindergarten teachers as well as um, provide women with a with an education so that way they wouldn't be um, they wouldn't be uh, I guess the term I'm looking for is they wouldn't be stuck in loveless marriages which is another thing that these the founders of these schools criticized a lot about mm -hmm. um, and so it's very much tied to that 1848 uh, moment where you have also the rise of the first organized women's movement um, in German-speaking Europe. And Frederick Frubel uh, really opposed that part of the school. He actually opposed the entire school. Um, it was actually founded by a kindergarten teacher that he trained, as well as his nephew, Carl uh, Frubel. And uh, it is in it occurs during one of the most politically radical phases of the kindergarten movement uh which is between 1848 and 1851 um and here this kindergarten um the, this part of the kindergarten movement really was explicitly tied to the movement for democracy the movement for women's equality women's professions and women's education as well as the movement for religious freedom um, and Jewish emancipation. So you see all of that coming together in this period, um, which again shows how the kindergarten was able to be mobilized for this idea of a new future uh, for all these different groups. It, that's very amazing that it, um, that it did so, especially considering that would have uh, as you said, that was against the the original creator's wishes. Um, what was his reaction when the when the college was made and so forth, especially from a blood relative? Oh, he stopped talking to his nephew. He didn't want to talk to his nephew at all after that. Um, even though he also educated his nephew, he was in charge of his nephew's education. So really, his other nephew, um, his other nephew is. Um, just a moment, I'm blanking out on his first name. Um, his other nephew was also a co-founder of the, the Democratic Congress um, of 1848 and was uh, arrested along with Robert Bloom in Vienna, uh, but he wasn't given the same execute, he wasn't given the same sentence as Robert Bloom. So you, you see these family relations going back to Frederick Frubel. But yeah, he really opposed the school. Uh, he actually wrote in a letter, he called them uh, Philistines and that he never once spoken to the women who are organizing the schools, which is a lie because he actually did write them letters and he even agreed to teach some lessons there. So really he's kind of wishy-washy, which is what I, I realized in, in 
my research. Um, and so, yeah, he, he didn't, he saw this as making his movement too political, uh, making it seem not respectable and that it would take away from his goal of trying to win state support for the project, um, which he still tried to do up until his dying days. Uh, he died trying to lift the kindergarten ban. So he died immediately that year. Um, but uh, the kindergarten itself ends up going beyond him, essentially, because it can be, it was easily moldable into these other political movements who saw it as this tool to create a new society that would ensure um, new ideas of rights and freedoms and equality and tolerance. Um, this is especially made clear in, an in um, some letters from some Democrats, uh, particularly um, a writer named Ludwig Stork uh, in Nordhausen, who wrote that, uh, who wrote to the dissenting pastor, Edward Baltzer, saying that every true Democrat is working towards opening a kindergarten. And it was the it was the police officials who 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 saw these letters, and to them it was clear uh, evidence that the kindergarten is then tied to the so-called party of subversion um, that is trying to overturn traditional society. Um, so it gets wild; it goes beyond just frugal at that point. Hmm. Yeah. The. Um uh, my, as my listeners haven't uh, reached there yet, but 1848 is a wild year for Germany. It is a, um, basically it just feels like a year that would never end. Mm -hmm. um, and then it suddenly does. Mm -hmm. and what's, um, what is going on for the kindergartens during that year that never ends in the 1848? And then, you know, what's the, what happens when that year finally does end and the conservatives are back in power once more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when... When it first breaks out, like when, not even when it breaks out in Germany, but when news from France comes to them that people in France have overturned the Orléans monarchy, the, a kindergarten teacher, for example, Amelia Kruger, is celebrating, saying that this shows that this is a new era for, um, for the French, but also it, for, for humanity and the Germans as well. Um, to work towards building a new future where she sees the kindergarten as a vital part of that. She then continues to write to um, Frederick Frubel later on and, and continuing throughout uh, this revolutionary period in 1848, identifying the kindergarten as the stepping stones for a new future. And it's not only her, but uh, dissenters. So part of the, one of the biggest mass movements in Germany during the 1848 revolution are the religious dissenters. Um, and these are people who not who didn't necessarily convert to this dissenting congregation, but saw within dissenting congregations a space to discuss uh, democratic forms of society, to discuss liberalism and new ideas of rights and freedoms that were really opposed to the type of authority that you saw in Prussia at this time. 
not only in Prussia, but also in Bavaria, um, in Baden-Württemberg, it was very popular. And um, so throughout, and so you see these dissenting congregations then identified the kindergarten as this, um, this anti-establishment institution that they can then utilize. And this is particularly in 1848 and it continues on. Um, and so the kindergarten then becomes part of this new institution to remake the family, remake the state, remake society. Um, and people who were going into the Frankfurt Parliament, for example, were the same people who were um, trying to create kindergartens. And so you see an overlap of, of the same names. Uh, so in Hamburg, for example, Anton Rie, uh, Gabriel Reiser, Reiser, I'm mispronouncing his name, and uh, some other folks were all supportive of the kindergarten project in Hamburg um, and have worked with leading dissenters. Um, and you see also here the mix of Jewish emancipation activists with Christian dissenters working together with the kindergarten um, and also with the democratic parties uh, or liberals as well, even though they were opposed to one another and this becomes more clear by uh, 1850 when you start seeing um, the the real differences in how they imagined uh, this new Germany to look like. And so, yeah, so during this phase, during the revolution, you really start seeing at first in the beginning this radical utopian hope that the kindergarten is supposed to represent for this new society. Uh, that really mirrors the discussion that's happening all over Western Europe or and Central Europe at this time. Um, this idea of a free, equal, um, tolerant kindergarten um, that doesn't use masculine authority, but rather feminine love and care that encourages children to learn. Um, as some of the kindergarten writers described it as um, a different form of education which opposes the type of um, um, despotic education that Prussia used to employ. That's a direct uh, term used by um, some of these activists. But then by the time you get to 1850, when the real divisions between the different parties come out, uh, when the state, when the conservative state has reemerged, and especially in Prussia, you have this um, new police association that is hunting down essentially revolutionaries and trying to to suppress uh, revolutionary subversion. You get then people trying to appeal to liberals that the kindergarten isn't so radical, that some people might have gotten too, uh, I guess what the kids would say, lost in the sauce with what the kindergarten is supposed to represent. Um, but, and then you see that the radicals themselves are essentially, um, that this dividing line, they, they're isolated as well. They end up taking the kindergarten to North America um, or Britain. So you get the exiles in 1851. Um, so the founder of the, 
um, the women's college, for example, they they go into exile. They go to to Britain and they open up another kindergarten there, along with some other Hamburg activists. And so the first kindergarten um, is opened up in Britain, and then they and then some other activists go to the states. So Karl Schutz, um, the famous 1848er who enters who who becomes um, a congressman, is it? In the U.S., uh, congressman, uh, U.S. general, couple of things yeah. under his belt. <laughs> uh, uh, a man of all trades. Uh, basically, yeah. Uh, yeah, his wife ends up opening up uh, a kindergarten as well in uh, Watertown, Wisconsin. I think that's where where they landed. Um, and yeah, his wife was the sister of the of one of the founders of the Hamburg Women's College. And so you see these direct links. Um, and so it's, it's, it goes wide. But at that point in 1850, 1851, you see the cleavages as well as the, um, the, the ways that the liberals have moved away from the radicalism and it, it, ship, it splits the movement. Um, the state ends up wanting to take more control of these educational spaces, which they see were used to essentially uh, as the police uh, president, the, the, as the, the Berlin police president states, the kindergarten at this point was used as a space to spread socialism and atheism to children. And so they wanted to kind of control it. First they banned it. And then after that, they decide um, to lift the ban, but make sure that they control the space. What made them decide to lift the ban on it? The liberals. So as a, the, the, this whole liberal campaign, um, particularly led by uh, one of the activists named Berta von um, Berta von Marenholtz Bulow. Um, again, she is this uh, figure that's very much attached to one of the leading Prussian families. Um, Bulow family is very, um, I mean. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you said the name, it's like, wait, I know that name. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, she ends up leading a campaign along with a liberal middle-class association to try and promote the kindergarten as this ideal space that works with state officials to to um, educate young preschool age children. And so you see them sending letters to the Prussian queen, for example, listing out the benefits. Uh, Marinholtz Bulow, uh, she develops contacts with um, various state officials as well as um, international state officials to kind of make the kindergarten respectful. And she also states that, again, that the people, the radicals of the past did not know how to use the kindergarten, essentially. That they just attached the kindergarten to their radical political goals without using it as it should have been used. And she ends up, um, also writing about the proper way to train women to use the kindergarten or to, to work in the kindergarten. Um, so trying to define the proper profession for women here. And so 
she ends up leading this campaign with this institution, uh, with this association. Um, and it essentially, uh, and her connections with the interior minister really help here. Um, and it essentially um, gets the ban lifted, but there's a specific part of the ban that says only those women who have proper qualifications, who are morally, politically, socially, um, and religiously, if I didn't mention that, uh, qualified can work for the kindergarten. Um, again, this was a, a, the state's reflection on the ways that the kindergarten essentially had employed people that it did not see as morally fit to teach children. So at this point, then the state would have a say on who gets to um, be employed in the kindergarten. Uh, they would have to view uh, educators, um, essentially their biographical information. They wanted a letter about their, uh, ed their educational background, their religious background, um, what qualities they had. They also wanted report cards, essentially, from training institutes, uh, reference letters from other educators to show that these people were qualified. And a lot of it centered on them making sure that they are properly feminine, that they did not have um, explicit political goals. And so a lot of the new teachers write about how they are, that they have this natural childlike um, essence to them, that they're purely innocent, that they're great believers in the Prussian monarchy, that they uh, don't want to get rid of any type of authority. And so you see that uh, happening in the 1860s. You actually also have cases where people were rejected by the Prussian officials because they were deemed to be not morally fit. Um, and a lot of that time, so the, this one um, piece of evidence this one case uh, singled out this woman because she did not come that because she did not have money. So she did not come from a wealthy family. Um, they even accused her of being uh, a prostitute at one point. And what's funny enough is that this woman, it was really sad, actually, because this woman responded to the police officials who banned who because she was seeking employment. And at that point, the the police essentially said that you're not allowed to work here. And they ended up banning her from, um, I want to say they banned her from Berlin. So she wasn't allowed to enter the city anymore. Um, and she told them that they're wrong, that just because she's of this class does not mean that you can reject my years of, of work because she was herself was trained by Frederick Frubel. Um, and they just they did not care and essentially her appeals did not go anywhere um, which is very sad but it shows you the type of policing essentially that went into who could work in the kindergarten um, and not only did it require policing women's work and making sure that they were qualified but also this aspect of what type of lessons are going to be made in the kindergarten essentially so ensuring that there were religious lessons was very important for the prussians um which would have been uh, protestant based at the time it would have been protestant making sure that there's bible stories essentially 
um, that there are Bible lessons or uh, religious lessons of any sort, and that there's prayer is very important to give any sort of religious background. But what's fascinating is that these were still private institutions. They were not part of the state. Kindergarten is still to this day in Germany, private institutions. Um, they're not like in North America where they've actually become part of um, the school curriculum, which is what Frubel and his supporters wanted. Um, but here they're still private and the state still obsessively wanted to make sure that these private institutions were not used for political ends. So you, you said he wanted it to um, be part of the state? Uh, really? Wouldn't that go against, uh, wouldn't he be worried that that would go against what he was wanting with the lack of um, religious um, education so far? Wouldn't he think that if you gave it to the state, it, it would yeah. kind of go against that? Well, they thought that, it, they thought that there would be a new type of state, right? They thought... Oh, that's true. That, so you have, this goes with Adolf Diesterweg as well, who um, was a big supporter of the kindergarten. And he also believed that there shouldn't be there shouldn't be religious education for super young children. They could have religious education once they get older, but what is the small child? Because again, these are for children between the ages of two and six. Well, how, what are they going to remember of religious education in, um, in in preschool? And so they saw they saw that it wasn't necessary here essentially what should be taught were proper social and uh, developmental skills rather than religious lessons and so this was their goal and they continued with this goal to make it part of religious no, make it part of state schooling um, into the 20th century and it never never got there now of course in the different states so in Saxony or in, in Prussia um, because the still the, it, it's in Germany even till this day it's part of the federal it's part of the states the ones not the actual central state. Mm -hmm. Did um, was that the um, general reaction very similar to all the German states uh, post forty eight um, oppression response? So the they had a similar response in Saxony. Uh, so, uh, and also it took part within the, within the police association that was funded um, in the 1850s to kind of go after re revolutionary subversion. And so what you see is Prussia influencing other states to kind of give, um, give material on these revolutionaries to them. Uh, so Hamburg didn't have any kindergarten ban, and so the kindergarten still continued, but a lot of the radicals left. The women's college closed down. Uh, scandal essentially brought down um, these radical schools, and so you have then just middle class, very politically neutral schools continue. Um, in Saxony, it was banned. Uh, and then... In other areas, a lot of the times what you find is that um, Prussian police officers would kind of show up into small towns um, and they would write. Um, so, for example, in um, the newspapers dedicated to pedagogues and teachers, you get um, 
you would get a policeman writing a very damaging report on kindergarten supporters who were part of the teachers conference of like, I want to say 1853 or 1854, one of those. Uh, and they made comments directly on the kindergarten. Um, and, and this, and it was an, it, it was an anonymous, um, it was an anonymous writer, but he used direct quotes that were in a police report. And so it made you think, well, obviously these are the same people. Um, and so you see them then going to these small towns, these small places in Turingen, where they knew that revolutionaries would be going because they have more lax laws there regarding uh, going to um, regarding these um, these revolutionaries, and so you see then the Prussian officials trying to hound these small towns and small states to make sure that they actually follow um, these um, these anti-revolutionary laws to track down subversion. So even so, it's different in each state, but. Prussia has influence, uh, which is why a lot of these people end up still fleeing at the end. Um, like Karl Schwartz, who, I mean, he was part of that Baden uprising to try and continue it, uh, to continue the battle. And uh, so he leaves. Um, but it's interesting that, yeah, the state essentially, Prussia is able to kind of influence other states. This idea of respectability didn't allow people to look at the kindergarten the same way. It was kind of its image was tarnished with like radicalism. Mm -hmm. um, and so it took some time and it wasn't until the 1860s when they're able to kind of flourish again. And, and also that the kindergartens themselves were particularly strong only within particularly strong within more Protestant or confessionally mixed areas. Uh, so that leaves it away from the more Catholic South. Um, and in Austria, actually, it becomes part of the state um, education. So it has a different history in Austria. But even then, it's Austria that can control it. And Austria had a different history regarding um, uh, these dissenting organizations and stuff like that. Um, they were outlawed quicker in Austria, and so it gives them a different political context. I'm not surprised they were outlawed quicker. Um, were they outlawed before 48, or? I want to say. I mean, knowing Metternich, it would not surprise me. Uh. I think it was probably right around the same time, I, maybe in, right in 1848 or something. Mm. Um, I'll have to look into that one, but they were outlawed, outlawed quicker, and they didn't have much of a, they didn't have much strength, particularly also because the dissenting congregations themselves were stronger in, again, confessionally mixed or Protestant areas. And so it being a more dominantly Catholic um, state, it wasn't so strong there, the dissenters. So um, talking about the dissenters, um, you you mentioned that this uh, uh, these kindergartens became a center for uh, um, the uh, Jew Jewish civil rights. Jewish, um, um, I think of the right word here. Oh, I'm blank on it. Um, it. 
talking basically about their civil rights as citizens and so forth, and not being the separate people that they've constantly been afflicted as in uh, mm -hmm. most of European history. Uh, could you expand a bit on that? Yeah, so um, in an interesting way, the kindergarten becomes tight. I think the word you're looking for is emancipation. Thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah. I can't think of the um, word. <laughs> so the, the kindergarten becomes an interesting tool for Jewish emancipation. Um, and I think it, a lot of time, at least in my research, what it, what happened was that the it was the dissenting congregations themselves that inspired interreligious partnership. And through that, um, discussions of the kindergarten as the space to kind of um, continue the work for Jewish emancipation, but also freedom for a religion, which would also be spread to, um, to religious dissenters. And so what actually I find out I, I, I discovered in my research is that a lot of times the religious discrimination that you find in 1850 during the conservative reaction is not targeting Jews, it's targeting Christian dissenters, um, which is wild, essentially. But yeah. it shows this importance of inter-religious inter conflict as much as... Um, as, as much as uh, Jewish-Christian conflict. Um, at the same time though, um, what you saw, what I, I find during my research is uh, looking particularly in the beginning. So in 1840 or during the 1840s, these types of networks that happen between Hamburg Jews and Hamburg um, non-Jews to found uh, institute uh, to fund associations explicitly targeting the uplifting of Hamburg Jewish communities. Um, and they weren't so long lasting or so strong, but they illuminated a new type of partnership which didn't really exist prior to that. So you had these different communities uh, that were quite separate and distinct during the 18th century, it seems. Um, and again, with the Napoleonic period, you see a shift in that balance where you see the communities coming together. Um, so you get the first reform temple in, um, in Hamburg in 1817. I always mix up the date, 1817. Uh, and the same people that fund that founded the Reform Temple, which was again this um, this temple directed to reforming um, the Jewish community according to supposed modern ideas of religiosity and modern education, um, in the hopes of revigorating a Jewish community to live side by side with a non-Jewish community. So it was not about getting rid of one's Jewishness as much as it was about trying to strengthen the community and what it saw as it losing um, members to conversion. And you see this explicitly in some of the early newspapers that come out, uh, particularly in 1805, um, uh, or was it 1806, with this uh, journal called uh, Sulamit, 
um, which was uh, founded in Dessau, I want to say. Either way, these people end up uh, being the same founders of the Hamburg Temple. And interestingly enough, one of the founders of the Reformed Temple is the father also of a woman who ends up founding kindergartens in in 1849 in Hamburg, um, Johanna Goldschmidt. And so you see the direct lin uh, the direct uh, lineage from this history of Jewish reform, this idea of emancipation and the movement for equality, tolerance, and again, saving the Jewish community from what it sees as conversion, which it, direct, it interestingly directed at women, thinking that women were the one that were leaving the community. Um, and then you see that with uh, Johanna Goldschmidt, who wrote, uh, she writes this, uh, fictional set of letters um, between a middle-class Jewish woman and uh, um, an upper-class non-Jewish woman, a Christian woman, talking about the need to support one another through this idea of spiritual sisterhood, but also the need to fight discrimination that the Jewish community faces, particularly for the religious faith. Uh, she talks about the limitations placed on on men to enter certain professions that leaves men in certain um, economic destitute, even though they're so well educated, and the need to create an association of women directed on the movement for tolerance and equality. And that same association that she talks about in this fictional set of letters is put into practice. Um, in 1849, and that's the association that she uses to approach Frederick Frugel to found the kindergarten. And so you see this, um, and she's all, and it's from also these collection, the, this collection of letters, fictional letters at that, that also religious dissenters go and approach her to join their dissenting congregations, women's association, which was explicitly open to all women um, in the hopes of creating again this more tolerant society. Um, so there's a lot going on there regarding um, German Jewish history during the emancipation and these types of inter, not inter, but these types of um, these types of partnerships that move across religious lines, seeing again this utopian hope that the kindergarten can bring because it's supposed to be a non-sectarian form of education, that it's supposed to teach about the humanity of each child rather than the Christian child or the Jewish child. And uh, so you have this case in Hamburg, but you also have um, a Jewish school in Frankfurt that also opens up a kindergarten with explicit goals of bringing Christian and Jewish children back, uh, bringing these two communities together in the hopes of also creating more tolerant society. And that is opened up actually even before the term kindergarten is even founded. It, it was created in, 19, in 1839 when Frederick Frubel had founded a play institute. Uh, so he changes the name to kindergarten in June 1840. But uh, before that, he, he founded this play institute again uh, with the same ideas in mind. And so you see this director of a Jewish school um, see it as an ideal space to bring these two communities together. Um, 
and so it's interesting to see these um, in Frankfurt and in Hamburg, um, the ways that these Jewish communities who had long ties to this movement for emancipation and reform recognize the kindergarten as a special space in order to further their goals as well. Interesting. And um, with the, uh, the post-48 period with the, uh, you know, the Prussians cracking down and saying Protestants, um, yeah. kindergartens could be the only ones around. Uh, do we see any of the uh, Jewish ones being able to survive? Oh, yeah, which is uh, quite odd, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still get a large chunk of of Jewish teachers, right, and Jewish students um, in these kindergartens. And to some Protest- to, to some Prussian officials, this makes the kindergarten still seem like a threat that had to be controlled. Mm-hmm. But they still end up getting employed. They still end up working in the kindergarten. And so it seems much more like even if it's even if it's supposed to be Protestant dominated um, and ensure biblical lessons, for them, the Jewish teachers were not the threat. Mm-hmm. It, it was those who used religion or religious communities as a way to make political arguments. And this goes back to um, um, Weir's uh, book on religious dissent in 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 Germany and how religious how these dissenting congregations were used for political ends that they were they did provide individuals with a language to make um, to make claims for a new society, which the state saw as a threat to to their own existence because they also claim the use of religion. And and religion provided that language to speak about politics across the line. And so who gets to control this religious language um, and this interpretations of the scriptures was more of a political threat than the Jewish community, which makes me think again a lot about that, uh, that fact that it was these inter-Christian battles that were seen as the biggest threat Mm -hmm. um, to to depression. Yeah. That's rather fascinating. Um, It's very interesting to see um, um, that minority group uh, being able to get out of what um, most people would expect just to be utterly crushed by um, with a conservative backlash that would come after 48. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's Rather, uh, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, for the uh, for the common for the people who are using these that aren't part of these movements themselves, mm-hmm. uh, when the kindergartens first start showing up, what is the general opinion of uh, the people? Uh, so you know, not the government, not those who are trying to found them, but the people who suddenly just see a kindergarten pop up in their neighborhood. You know, what's the what's the general popular opinion about them? It's so fascinating because we don't really he- we don't really hear much from the ordinary people. We see letters in the news in the press talking about how great these kindergartens are. I mean, it's certain presses. It's like education press, um, 
the, these are journals dedicated to talking about education or journals dedicated to talking about how the family should be. And they all see the kindergarten as the space to essentially just teach social skills. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them end up writing about how their child has a hard time being separated from the family during those few hours. Or a lot of them write about how mothers should be part of the kindergarten. And so they end up joining the family. They join their child during the lessons and they sit there. And what you see is like they don't, there's no, there's no politics essentially. I mean, I, I know everything is political, but a lot of times when these people are writing about their experience in the kindergarten in, in these journals, they're not really thinking about democracy or liberalism. And so they see it as essentially a beneficial institute to have their children interact with other children to like learn games and learn independence um, in a different way. But that does not mean that the kindergarten teachers themselves are kind of, or the the pedagogues themselves. You definitely have like the split. Um, And so it's fascinating to see that there is, there's a lot of different images going around essentially Mm -hmm. at at this time. and it's definitely also a middle class institution. Yeah, I was good. I was about to ask like what population is actually using this. It's it's a middle class institution because you had to pay a tuition to go in. And the children were supposed to be dressed up very pop- proper. Um, and a lot of times there's also the social critique against poor families. Now, poor uh, lower class families were given their own kindergartens, essentially, so they can segregate the lower class children from the upper class children. So you see that going down. And within that as well, you have critique from the pedagogues and the kindergartners who are seeing that it should, that the kindergarten should be used to kind of transfer morally upright values to the parents, essentially. Um, but for the middle classes, um, again, it's also the same. It's these are for children of the middle classes who would get time to play with one another and create a community with one another. So you have different views going on. So that's um, very interesting. So we're seeing them challenging many aspects, but not the social um, separation that's very clear at this time and becomes even more clear with 1848 when we get the um, communist manifesto and the oh yeah the revolutions there and it's so it's so wild just to to add on to that um Mm -hmm. i was gonna say sometimes these tuitions are so wild uh for example the women's the women's college had a tuition of 1000 of 1000 prussian dollars which is mm-hmm. super expensive so what would that be like the equivalent of for um people like you know do you have any like equivalency for us to, to go i have to look up the equivalency i, I want to say is it 1000 or 100 i'm forgetting it was just an extremely high number mm-hmm. um which meant that only seven people went to it essentially but the goal was that 
with this high number that they can then have scholarships created to at least get some lower class people in there. That was their goal. That was their plan, yeah. That was their plan. Um, and they did have open lectures for other people um, because this was supposed to be more of a, a pension house as well. So they would have like the women students um, staying there. But in these other kindergartens as well, um, yeah, you had a split between the public, the not public, but these more popular kindergartens uh, against these more middle-class kindergartens. Um, and there was a tuition that had to be paid. And if it wasn't paid, they would go after the parents and ask them why it hasn't been paid. Um, and so it's interesting. Um, but they would also write reports on children's learning experience, how they're coping. And so this kind of like a scientific look at children after that. Interesting. And do we, we, do we still see that um, separation and um, so forth as uh, the state uh, mandates start uh, publishing? Well, that's when the state man, that when the state takes over who can open up a kindergarten. Mm -hmm. um, that becomes more clear then. In the beginning, what you find in the attendance reports is that it's really for certain communities. And so the dissenting community, for example, will be sending their children to a kindergarten or the community around Frederick Frugal will be sending their kids there. And so what you see is a lot of them are like related to Frugal and the teachers. Um, a lot of like the upper class people will be sending their um their children they're not upper upper class but like um lawyers children's and stuff like mm -hmm. that um and so you see that and it actually it's so interesting because in the earlier phase it would actually list out the profession that their family belongs in and so you can see then the class that they're coming from you know that would be a great resource for research <laughs> being able to see who all is sitting in and what their profession was Exactly. I love it. It's it's it was excellent seeing that. And then um, and that one was from. Yeah, because before Frugal opened up the kindergarten, he had a boys school, which was also supposed to be based in nature and they would, you know, grow their own vegetables and do their own thing and sell that in the market. They're supposed to be like a self-sustaining community. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would see that there, that this alternative idea of, of education. And actually, they were very much like hippies. And this is what people made fun of them for, yeah. uh, as like they had long hair and they wore funny clothes. This is what people actually wrote. And that you can, uh, they, they stayed in the forest. And actually, the, Prussian, um, the Prussians... Uh, wrote or the Prussian police wrote about them saying a lot of these radicals of the Burschenschaft are going to Frubel school. This was 1824 that they're going to the school in Turingen because there no one's no one's closing down these schools. All these radicals are going there, and so yeah, they they wrote about that and it was quite and, and so it actually forced the school into some economic issues because then the state was on them but it shows you like this type of hippie-esque thing which makes me always think about the relationship between this project on uh, this 1848 kindergarten project 
and then the stuff in 1968 where people are also thinking about how can we remake school and the families in a way that is anti-authoritarian and gets rid of this traditional father figure which they associate with despotism and totalitarianism and stuff like that hmm. that is pretty that's that's pretty fascinating i'm having a hard time not picturing like a you know, 1960s 1970s hippie now in oh yeah East germany <laughs> it's actually quite wild because they also used to call frugal the old fool uh, because again he would speak like a hippie actually his writing was so notoriously weird that people just could not understand what he's talking about because he's talking about mysticism he's talking about the spirit of like the education which you think 19th century is all about the spirit or the essence of things but for folks frugal was just too much it was just the age of romanticism and you know the the, the feeling of everything he's too much he was, he was seen as the fool who plays with children <laughs> and that's exactly what he was called um she was it's just it, yeah but when you read his stuff you can understand it like this is just repetitive and doesn't make any sense <laughs> yeah yeah, so I'm sure he would have fit in quite well then with the 19, uh, the late 1960 crowd then. Exactly. Uh, what what happened to him after the uh, the crackdowns in uh, 48 and 49? Well, he he was in Hamburg and he went back to Turingen, um, Bad Liebenstein. Um, but he kept on trying to contact. He put in some letters to the to the editors. Uh, letters to his followers saying he's going to lift this ban. It doesn't end up going. Um, in 1852, I believe, he dies. Um, so he dies when it's banned. Yeah. But he, you could see in his letters his kind of sadness and depression. Um because again, he kept on saying, "All oh, my my life's work has now been banned," and he just he kept on appealing to the religious aspect. And there is a weird dissenting um, religious aspect to his to his um, his schooling. He spoke about God and nature that he kept on trying to prove to the Prussians, but to the Prussians, that was exactly the thing that they're trying to ban: this mm -hmm. idea that God was in nature, uh, that God uh, was essentially supporting people on this movement towards some sort of perfection which meant that there was no sin essentially in children uh so he he did not recognize that that was what they were going for he also um spoke about his faith in the monarchy trying to appeal to them and it didn't work out so he ends up dying he did go to, he did end up going to one of these teachers associations conferences before dying, uh, where people were trying to show the support for him, but it didn't, it didn't do much. So he, he ended up not seeing it full through. But the person who does end up doing the most to get the ban lifted, Berta von Mernholtz Bulow, was trained by Frubel himself. And they had a close relationship. Um, but she was one of the more conservative women. The movement, as I mentioned before. Uh, coming for, with her background, I would have been surprised uh, yeah. for her not to be more of the conservative. 
that that family is uh, deeply centered in the politics and the government of Prussia. So. Oh, yeah. um, so interestingly enough, the guy who lifts the ban is also uh, um, I, I'm trying to remember his full name. The guy that lifts the ban is uh, Bettman Holvig, um, which if you know about World War One history, mm-hmm. um, so his it's his nephew, his great nephew, who is the chancellor when Germany goes into World War One, who has like a really historiographically challenging um, kind of forces the hand of the government to go to war, um, forces the kind of path to war. But he is the one that lifts the ban, and he's also the one who is much more moderate compared to other conservatives at this moment, and he is the interior minister of Prussia. So again, you see the same families, as you said, just pop up throughout German history. So there you go. That's how their that's how their governments work. It's always the same families over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it's just wild to see. And also, uh, just a fun fact: they're speaking about the same families. Yeah. Um, the guy who bans the kindergarten, the interior minister that helps ban the kindergarten, um, is Karl Marx's brother-in-law. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. I figured any relations of his would be suspect. <laughs> uh, Karl Marx's brother-in-law. Uh, I need to get it while we're in conversation. Uh, <laughs> because I, I... I'll just bug you if you don't. Oh, yes. Uh, Minister of Westphalen. Um I recognize name. I didn't realize he was related to Karl Marx in any way. He's not related. It's his brother. Well, I, yeah, brother-in-law. Um, just, um, man. Yeah, and so it's wild um, that the lines get kind of blurry, don't they? Yeah. Um, because uh, Westphalen is the same guy who ends up calling. He He's the one that creates this entire... Uh, mechanism uh, to suppress the revolutionary upheaval or the the whatever the revolutionary subversion the threat of that he he's the one that sets up his mechanism and he, I mean he points the finger to socialism and so it's interesting to see um, close family lines mm-hmm. uh, that would have made for any tense dinners if you went over to his sister's house <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, yeah, Jenny von Westphalen, who is Karl Marx's wife. Um, yeah, I recognize the name Jenny. Yeah. I never put that together. (laughs) Conservative minister. Um, so funny. I, I can't get over that. Um, but yeah, especially talking about, like, this idea of, uh, that line from the Communist Manifesto when it goes, um, essentially that there is this global movement for 
suppression, I think he, he points out to, I'm forgetting the line, it's in my dissertation, but um, <laughs> it, it mirrors what happens with the kindergarten, essentially. This kind of going globally to, to find subversives um, that includes kindergarten activists, essentially. That would definitely, that's definitely how the kindergartens um, do get out from underneath the control because they do, they do pretty well here in the U.S. Um, and it takes a while, but they do pretty well. Um, it takes a while, um, but they do pretty well, as you say. And it, it, interestingly enough, they first opened only for the German community and then it spreads um, because America, because uh, Anglo-Americans see their benefit, essentially. And then they start talking to other pedagogues. The same thing in Britain as well. Um, when it moves away from the exiles into English speaking. Yeah, that, the 48th uh, generation um, really does quite a number on their communities wherever they move to because um, the majority of them would have been part of your kindergarten, the sensory group, uh, <laughs> looking for their new home safely away from the government that no longer wants them. Yeah, actually one of the guys lands in Texas trying to open up this utopian community there, because Texas was seen as this hope. Uh, he ends up writing the ABCs of socialism. And so this is one kindergarten activist. Does he end up in Fredericksburg? That's like the, the largest. I'm not sure where he ends up. I have to do some more research on him. But yeah, when he, I mean, clear socialist background, um, mm -hmm. radical, and then the book that he writes, the ABCs of socialism, and it's just wild to me. Um, but again, it shows this wild side of the kindergarten that people wouldn't imagine when they no, first. Especially not that. today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Tell, telling the parents nowadays that, yeah, you're sending your kids to a place that, you know, once was the center of women's rights, uh, freedom of minorities, you know, even socialism, communism. Like, wait, what? Excuse me? Child's <laughs> <Hell's laughs> institution. Um, but, yeah, that's why it's so important to look into the history of education as these battlegrounds for the type of future that they want. These battlegrounds between reformers and revolutionaries and conservatives and traditional authorities who try to control these spaces. And it, it shows, you know, that um, what we've take for granted nowadays was not something that was taken granted forever. It was something that had to be fought over and discussed. And exactly. And actually part of the, so getting into, back into working on this project for, for the book now, so making it, re revising it and doing all that, thinking a lot about, and I never stopped thinking about this, but about the politics of education today as mm -hmm. well, right? The, at first, it was it's the battles over sex education um, back in Ontario when I first started this project. And then, as you see in the news today, these um, ideas to protect children from so-called um, queer influences or um, policing transness and all that. And again, it's this idea of ensuring a political status quo that certain authority figures want. And so it still highlights how key this discussion is. It's definitely played a major role in um, 
recent, uh, especially for where I live, um, and for history itself, just mm -hmm. where history sits within uh, the classroom and so forth. Yeah. Um, and it's a very interesting time, which is not a fun thing to say about your own time period. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's kind of depressing. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the well, one final question I had uh, for you regarding these uh, kindergartens um, before the crackdown and you know the complete ban of them and so forth. Um, how 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 many uh, would we be looking at in like the state of Prussia or in, uh, the German Confederation? Are they in like every major town or uh, are they even out in the countryside at this point? They it's more. It's really depends on where you're looking at here. Um, and so Hamburg had like, I want to say eight, eight or seven. Um, and they had some small independent ones during the revolutionary time period there. Um, and uh, in Turingen, it was in a lot of these small places. The exact number. I'm still trying to figure out now, um, but it's what I've seen is that it's very spread out. It really depends on their connection with Frugal um, and what type of communities that they're serving. So if there's a dissenting congregation, there will be a kindergarten there. Um, if it's more Protestant dominated, um, there would be a kindergarten there. If they had some sort of political affiliation, there will be a kindergarten there. That's, if it's a political affiliation that is not um, like old school traditional, so I'm meaning like liberal or democratic or or those. Um, and so I'm still trying to figure it out. But for the example of Hamburg, it's definitely uh, no more than 10, but I would say between seven and eight. Seven and nine, from what I'm trying to remember. Um, and in Breslau, there was, and you can see this in, in, in the press from the revolutionary time. So it really depends on what type of place you're looking at. Interesting. So for the, um, uh, they're basically, uh, uh, if you lived in a uh, larger city, you know, you had a good chance of seeing or interacting with one. Uh, and then elsewhere, you probably have definitely heard of them, but not uh, not always interacted with them, just depending on your area. Yeah, and it's so wild to me that in Turingen, because it's so close to where Frubel was working, you definitely see a lot more there, even in the small towns, um, which is interesting. Um, and in Dresden, there were definitely a bunch there, but yeah, it really depends on the type of networks that people have there. Awesome. Um, okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you so much for coming on to our show, uh, telling us a bit about your research and explaining the very uh, crazy political world that is our modern day kindergarten. Um, thank you again so much. Thank you for having me. All right. And guys, uh, please, uh, ch uh, you can check out uh, more about her dissertation. Uh, she's, uh, you're currently working on your book right now for it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there, uh, any any idea when that will be um, published or are you still in the works? Uh, it's still in the works. I'm still oh, <laughs> editing and, and, um, and adding stuff to it. Um, but um, 
I do plan on publishing some articles soon, so I'm working on that as well. Well, uh, if you wouldn't uh, mind uh, letting me know when those are published, and I will gladly share them because uh, I know quite a few of my listeners would love to learn more about uh, these kindergartens and where uh, they come from because to us, it is just now part of an everyday society. Mm-hmm. Anytime. I'm happy to share. Well, thank you so much. All right, guys. Uh, I, we will uh, talk to you in, next time. Thank you so much. Take care.